Greetings, everyone. I wanted to preface this installment of Our Social Landscape with a disclaimer. I interviewed a colleague of mine uh, to, f to talk about civil unrest from their field, and we had a terrible time with the technology. So we could not get Zoom to work, and then we used WebEx, and WebEx cut us off twice, and we had to... I had to edit out a number of things because the volume was cutting in and out. It was just a mess. I almost considered not uh, keeping it, but I tried to polish it up as good as I can. So just be aware that I am aware of some of the, the volume issues or the technical issues, but hopefully you will still find it valuable. Do you see me? Not yet. Well, that's all right. As long as you can hear me, I guess that be works, right? You can't see me? No, did you click on that camera icon on the bottom? That work? I don't see it, but hey, let's go on ahead and... Um, oh, there you go. Okay. Oh, I see you. What's up, man? <laughs> Hopefully, this will come out right. So, you're good? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Now <laughs> I've forgotten all about the content. <laughs> and I'm all like... I'm just like all trying to figure out Zoom. <laughs> yeah, I know technology, right? It's supposed to make our lives easier. Okay. Okay. Greetings and welcome to our social landscape. In lieu of posting a written article this time around, I decided to post a short podcast or two. The killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police has sparked civil unrest, not just around the United States, but in many other parts of the world as well. Since I started this blog, I've consistently applied the sociological approach, often I call it the sociological imagination, to these current issues, and I wanted to explore how people in other fields and walks of life approach them. So I decided to ask a colleague or two of mine some questions and post that for the current iteration of my blog. As such, I'd like to introduce Dustin Harewood, a professor of art at Florida State College at Jacksonville on the Kent campus, as well as a renowned visual artist with pieces of his art hanging on walls across the country, I'm sure, right here in Jacksonville at the airport, street and girls in Barbados, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I started working with Dustin back in 2009, and he's done a tremendous amount of work with students at the college, as well as in the dynamic Jacksonville art scene as a whole. So it's an honor to have you on my podcast, Dustin. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe just introduce yourself, tell us briefly uh, about your background. Thank you for inviting me, JR. Um, hmm. Um, families from Barbados, um, born in the United States, um, yes, and have lived in both places, uh, and I am located here. I'm based here in Jacksonville, chiefly, though. Yeah. Inviting me. Let's, let's get down to it. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. So before we get into um, you know, some specifics about art, can you just give me your general impression of what you, you know, what's going on right now, what appears to be a time of civic and social engagement the likes we haven't seen for maybe 50 years. Yes, I think it's been um, the past couple of days, JR, that I realized that this feels, it feels quite significant. And I, it feels like the energy that I would see in documentaries about the civil rights movement. Um, I didn't expect it to be this strong and impactful but that's what it feels it's what it feels like right now yeah it's hard to uh, to, to to not get your hopes up because it does seem to be um 
you know, I, I've said before that I, I remember the Rodney King verdict in the LA riots back in 1992, very, mm. I was a graduate student in Alabama then. And that you got the feeling then that, oh man, this is the moment. And yet, you know, here we are, however many years later, um, dealing with the same issues, but this one does have a different, a different flavor to it. So let's hope, uh, let's hope that you're right. So I think I was, I was actually living in Barbados when that happened. So that's fascinating because I don't know if I would have had the same perspective. And then back then there was no social media. Well, definitely like, not like what we're, what we have now. So, but so this, that something about this feels different. It, um, yes, it feels more impactful in my opinion, in my opinion. Yeah. And maybe it was the time of my life as well. I was kind of, you know, young and ideological and, um, and, you know, thousands of people injured, I don't know, 75 people killed, something like that. You know, it was just, it really kind of Mm. off its kilter a little bit, at least I thought. Um, and maybe we have seen incremental and progressive changes since then, but they've just been so small. And sometimes, you know, there's an appropriate, there's a backlash that goes along with them. So it kind of, I don't want to say it makes me cynical, but it kind of makes me, all right, well, let me just hold on and see what happens here before I really right. get my hopes up too high. But Well, and what's also fascinating and what's also quite sad is that it seems like for these movements, it, it seems like there has to be a martyr. Right, right. So it's it's um, unfortunate that that's the way it goes, but I mean, it seems like th- th- that Floyd had to die in order for people to actually pay attention. Had to die on camera because apparently um, Kaepernick kneeling or any of us complaining before was kind of falling on mostly deaf ears. So it's fascinating that it took kind of what people refer to as this like kind of public lynching where we could all see very clearly what happened and to for people to finally actually pay serious attention. Right. Cause people have been uh, martyred for a long time, but they weren't necessarily noticed uh, by the news. And you know, that, that is a whole different, you know, a whole different ballgame with what we have available to us right now. Yes. So what uh, one reason I started, to want to talk about this particular topic was a quote I saw quite a while ago, actually, by Joni Mitchell, who is a singer-songwriter. She's she's, um, considered one of, like, the big guns of the singer-songwriter genre in the last 50 years. People talk about her in the same way they talk about Bob Dylan and Van Morrison and whoever, and she actually considers herself a painter first uh, Mm. before a writer. She has quite a bit of, of painting that she's done. But she said, this is her quote, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. So that started making me think about this. And that's when I I decided I wanted to talk to you about it. So do you agree with that concept? Uh, You know, what role generally do you think art serves in times like this, either in peace, protest, reconciliation, whatever? And then does your art specifically have a role for that? Or is it kind of separate? Uh, So it's fascinating. um, When myself or my colleagues teach art appreciation, there's a section um, dedicated to what artists do. And it's a talk about the different things that artists do. So one of them would be kind of like refresh our vision or help us see the world in new ways. That's one thing. One is like creating extraordinary versions of ordinary things or objects. A third thing would be give tangible form to the unknown. So these ideas of like, you know, old Renaissance paintings, like painting what Jesus looked like or what God looked like giving life to Adam or something. And then there's also artists also throughout history have been with recording and commemorating moments in history. 
Okay. So that's also one of the things that falls under <laughs> the banner. You know, these are sections of what are things that artists do. And so mm -hmm. it was funny um, because when you use that quote, then the question becomes uh, what kind, they're all different types of artists, so visual artists. So the question is, um, are all of them responding in that way of kind of recording and commemorating or, um, yeah. And that was, that's, that's an interesting question. Okay. And you actually kind of got to a question I wanted to ask a little bit later. I had written down is what about that history? How is art used for that purpose? Documenting in history. I mean, yeah. if you think of famous paintings like Napoleon crossing the Alps, is like a famous one. I mean, uh, once upon a time you have all of these kings and these princes and uh, queens, all kind of these these grand, or you'd have these grand uh, narrative paintings showing uh, Columbus, <laughs> say, or no, George Washington, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Uh, so crossing was it the Potomac? What, what was it? What was George Washington? Gosh, I should know that. I I, I apologize. Yeah, that's a good question. The crossing the, I need to, oh, that just dropped right out of my head. We need Rochelle Wadsworth here because she said she just finished reading a book about Washington. So she was giving me all these details about George Washington. So we'll have to ask her for help. <laughs> but when you think about it, there's so <laughs> right, many paintings I like that, right? There's so many paintings like that, which are supposed to record to show a very specific thing. We had uh, that great liberty um, uh, with the French Revolution. There, there are so many different paintings that are there to kind of record and commemorate certain moments in history. Um, so when you ask me that question, that's a tricky question because if my work usually is not about that, I have art, I know artists who make those sorts of works. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm not usually into making that sort of work, that's a great question you're asking me because that's something I'd be trying to sort out right this second. Sure. For myself, yeah. yeah, I was I was thinking about that because I, 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 I does it for it art to effectuate change? Does it have to specifically be protest art? Does it have to be in your your view like you know visual paintings of riots and lynchings and things like that, or is there a more subtle way that it can uh, can lead to change? Well, that's great. That's that's a great one there too, Jr. Because I know a few artists that are political artists who are very overt. <laughs> <laughs> right, that are very much in your face, um, who literally spell it out. I think that I've always been an artist who was very subtle with uh, with my messaging, so it wouldn't be readily understandable, but the more you decipher, then you kind of figure it out. Um, so I've always been one of those artists who's a bit more subtle, but there are a few artists in this community. There's Overstreet Ducasse, there's uh, Chip Southworth. There are a few artists who specialize in dealing with politics and issues in that straight up bold in your face way. So when you question, I really had to think hard about that because these different languages that we're using and we're all kind of using different techniques. And the question is, um, do some more abstract painters, painters, painters who don't use a lot of symbolism or don't, you know, deal with text in their work, um, how exactly would they deal with right at this mm -hmm. moment? You know what I mean? I mean, I do portraiture, but I've resisted making portraits of Floyd, um, 
or Trayvon Martin or other people because me personally. So there are a lot of artists who have done that. And um, there are a lot of artists who've done it now. Um, I have always felt a little awkward about kind of um, capitalizing on the movement. Okay. There are parts of me that don't want to do the portrait, even though I know a lot of eyes will come in my, you know, will sure, obviously sure. be directed toward me if I do it at the moment. I think I literally had someone who I know who worked in news, who uh, knows I do portraits, had seen a portrait somewhere and then wrote me and said, hey, is that a portrait? Did you do that? <laughs> and then I had to say, no, that was that was not me. And I knew exactly what this person was getting at. Yeah. And I knew at the moment if I'd done the portrait, then it would have probably been would have been on the news. Sure, sure. But yeah, me personally, sure. um, at this moment, it's almost I don't know. I don't feel good about doing it, knowing that. Um, I mean, I always have to hustle, and right, right. always about hooking attention is one of the main things that we do. And so the question for me is: Do I feel comfortable with hooking people's attention in that way? And I don't know, Jr. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't, I'm not able to give yeah. you a very concise. No, no, that's the question. In my, I don't really have to answer in my field. You know, that's just not. It's something <laughs> that we come across because this is, you know, this is kind of what we, what we do. Where we come from it from such different perspectives. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, it's like worth living. Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse. I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give a damn about a Negro. Pull a trigger, kill a nigga. He's a hero. Get it back to the kids who the hell cares. One less hungry mouth on the welfare. First ship him, don't let him deal with brothers. Give him guns, step back, watch him kill each other. It's time to fight back. Getting back to what made me curious about the role of art. And what made me want to ask you these questions is another quote I saw recently. You know, there's this old debate. If you want to make change in society, where should you start? You know, so should you start with the economic sphere, like who has money? Should you start with the political to change the politics? Or should you start with the society's culture? And, you know, Karl Marx, who was a, a big impact on my field, he thought that culture is really just a manifestation of the ruling class. People that have power, they define what culture is. So that's kind of how a lot of sociologists, not all, see that. But then I saw this quote, and here's, here's what it said. Artists have always been agents of cultural change. They can sway opinions, direct resistance, or reform. The aesthetic culture has a notorious ability to illustrate political truth about complicated structures. An art-based approach is necessary because it stimulates empathy, and empathy is necessary to achieve social justice. To affect real change, activists need to work through culture. So what do you think? Is culture the first step? Like, can culture change? Can art change economic power and things like that? Well, I think absolutely, and I think one of the... Um I think one of the more obvious places where you would see it these days would be through music. And um, I was just, as you were reading that, I was thinking about the idea of um, even rap music and hip hop culture and kind of through the late eighties, early nineties, going 2000, whether it was groups like NWA, um, yep. right. Or you want to talk about public enemy and then we can fast forward to now, there are certain artists, um, well, like Kendrick Lamar, mm -hmm. J. Cole, where these movements, um, there's this power 
and, and there's something about listening. I think Tupac, that's what made Tupac Shakur so um, long lasting. I mean, there were a lot of other rappers who sounded great, but I think the reason why that Tupac transcended was because up to now, there's certain songs, there's a song called Changes, where, I mean, if you click and play it right now, I mean, it could be applied to what's going on at the moment. Mm -hmm. And to have these things with these lyrics repeated over and over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that there, it resonates. Um, I think there's a reason why Bob Marley, to this day, is still relevant. Sure. And it's, it's because of the content, right? Right, um, right. So, Unfortunately. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so... I yeah, so I, I would say I, those I, are very powerful artists, and their work has has stood the test of time because of that content. And I do think that it has had a dramatic impact on the culture. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, okay, Thank you. I have two just two more quick ones. So, um, on a personal level, you have two children, you know, of color. What do you tell them about all this? How does this affect your parenting, or does it not? Because this is par for the course. What's fascinating about this in particular is that I actually did not talk to my kids about what was happening right now. And I was trying to figure out why I didn't. I think I realized growing up that my biggest problems as a black kid was that all of my heroes were generally white men, whether it was Spider-Man or Hulk or if it was like, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I found that, um, big issues that I would have had were these just these ideas of self-identity and like the strength and, under, and understanding who I was, my worth. And so with my kids, I think I've emphasized more having them look at a lot of black content. Um, I was having a lot of discussions about um, Africa and uh, African countries and African culture, which was something I don't think my parents ever did with me. Mm -hmm. um, just to kind of establish a strong sense of self. Okay. Um, and I was wary of having this discussion because sometimes, well, the other thing about theology, right, is that this idea of human conditioning and sure. this idea of um, these points you let black kids know uh, what the limitations are supposed to be around them. You let black kids know what they can and can't do. Let black mm -hmm. kids know um, that they should be afraid of the police or be very, very careful around them. Mm -hmm. Certain mm -hmm. things like that. And there's something going on with me now with two little ones. And it's the question is, do I tell them they should be afraid? Do I tell them that these things are, are happening right this second? Um, or do I just keep building up that strong sense of self. I'm not sure. I mean, we just went to the Smithsonian for African American Art, um, African American history in DC. We made our second trip this past spring break before the pandemic. And we went, we went through the museum from top to bottom. So we went through the civil rights section. We talked about all that stuff mm -hmm. in great detail. Uh, so yes, so we went through all that already. Um, and now, so now it's funny. I did hesitate. I, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. if I want. I'm, I feel inundated. I feel very sad. I felt very angry, and I'm not. I wasn't sure if I wanted to. Um, I don't know. Engage my nine-year-old and my seven-year-old in that at the moment. I, I and I'm not even sure if that's the right thing or not. 
but it was just kind of how I was feeling. Right. Yeah. A question I don't ever have to really worry about trying to answer as a, as a, as a white person, just a conversation I don't need to have. I need to have a different conversation, you know, about race with my children, but not one where I, I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois talked about that. Like, do you insulate them as best you can for as long as you can to make yeah. them stronger? Or do you just expose them to them right away so that they can kind of baptism by fire and, and figure it out, you know? So uh, I, I thought about that and I wondered, you know, with so much going on, it's hard for kids to not at least hear something, you know, that that's happening, uh, even though your yeah. littles are pretty little. Yeah. So that's, and that's, that's the trickiest one. I know a lot of people who said that they had this conversation with their children. Um, but I think I was just so angry. I was, I was angry for a while and I, I'm not sure if I wanted to visit that anger or I, I wasn't sure visiting the anger and frustration on them at this point was something that I struggled with. My intuition told me just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, um, and again, I'm not sure if that's the right or the wrong thing that I should have done, but I do know <laughs> that these are definite conversations that I want to continue to have with them. The problem that a lot of uh, black people, and I'm not the big, I'm not the spokesman for all black people, but <laughs> some problems we've had in our community, uh, whether it be black artists that I've met and interacted with or whatever, is that sometimes um, they're too aware of certain limitations from the past. Okay. They're too, they're too aware of the fact that they may be marginalized. And then sometimes I wonder if it clouds their judgment on the things that they do moving forward. And I'll tell you right now, I could very easily give you all of the very responsible answers. The, I, I, can, <laughs> I can give you a whole lot of answers that sound really good, and I know exactly what to say to you. But I think it was more important for me to be honest and kind of really just be sincere about the conflicts and um, inside sure. and, and um, right. What is the best way? What is the best way um, as an artist? Because I always I question certain artists intent sometimes with when they join causes. And the question is, right, again, is it really about the cause or right. is this a, is the cause? Um, are you right. Are you profiting off of the cause? And okay. um, and again, then I, again, I think it depends on what kind of work you do. So if Joni Mitchell had a lot of um, music that might have dealt with what was going on in society at the time, or if we're talking about, um, what's the girl, N Nina Simone, sorry, I don't know what's going on with me right now. <laughs> Nina Simone was very direct about the idea of, well, and she's not the only one, the, the greatest artists are the ones that reflect the time that they're in. But at the same time, um, and then what kind of work are the uh, not so good artists going to make at a okay. moment like this? I think that there's probably a lot of art that I would have seen made that's not good, but is it? And then, um, and so there's another question I had when I was talking to a friend of mine, a studio visit I did with someone recently, which was the idea of a certain artists making weak art but hiding behind a very strong, um, very strong content. Huh. But at the same time, kind of the actual work itself suffering. Okay. But you dare not being able to question the quality of said work, because if you question the quality of the work, then you're questioning the movement. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's the, an interesting dynamic is. I've never thought of. Yeah, I hadn't mm -hmm. thought of that. You got me? 
Mm-hmm. Someone makes yeah. a really weak painting um, that I feel like is just not good and, <laughs> and it's about Floyd. Am I allowed to then approach that person and say, I don't think this is good? Or am I insulting the movement and am I not down with Floyd if I do that? And that's right. a whole other thing as a, as a professional artist. These are some things that I, I think about a lot. And a professor of art, not just someone who happens to be pretty good, but someone who knows the technical ins and outs and all the rest. You know? Yes, and thank you. And sometimes someone told me one time, sometimes you can know too much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not right. good either. <laughs> yeah, right. Didn't they say ignorance is bliss? All right, last right. one. So uh, yes. if you could choose. It's a tough one, but if you could choose one thing to make uh, forward progressive changes, number one thing you think in, in the U.S., let's limit it here, what what would that be? And for me, as, as I've said before, as a sociologist, we talk a lot about the power structure and the political duopoly, the, the two parties and only having two parties, and they're both kind of basically the same in terms of wealth and power, things like that. That's where I would start. But what about you? Where would you start or as an artist or just as a human being? Uh, I would, well, education is the great equalizer and, uh, it's pretty obvious that not all kids get the same quality of education. And I think it is quite obvious that kids in lower, um, socioeconomic kind of, um, Mm -hmm. sections, their education is not the same as certain kids who are being sent to these private schools, (laughs) with kid with um, parents of means and then there are all these schools in but schooling in between but what i've noticed more and more and i think also having young kids it became even clearer to me jr was that i never really thought about it that much but then when my kids had to go to an elementary school i watched my my wife go into a full-on panic and then all of a sudden i got this huge education in what a uh, grade a uh, grade a school was grade b okay. c a failing school, like yeah. in elementary. And these are things that I never, like as an adult, as a bachelor before I was married and had kids, I wasn't thinking about those things at all, JR. Right. And then I'm like, what do you yeah. mean? We, we probably don't want to send our kids to this particular school in our particular neighborhood at the time where, you know, where we were living. And I'm, and, you know, and I'm there thinking, well, I mean, that's the school. Of course we send them there. And then going through this idea of like, look at the grade of that school. Look at this and look at that. And then also having some friends of greater means who, and then looking at their schools and how they were ranked. And if they didn't like the ranking of the said school, then they just were able to pay to get their kids sent to a school of a very high quality. And it was at that moment in my adult life, not too long ago, where it became (laughs) crystal clear to me that (laughs) not everyone is getting the same education. And the race already gets skewed from the time these kids leave kindergarten. Field is no longer level. I, I mean, it just blew my mind. It seemed like something I should, it should, should be very obvious to me, but I totally was not. I was thinking more college level. And I wasn't okay. thinking, my God, it gets skewed from the time these kids are like about six years old. This yeah. is already happening. Being trained to be in service of the kids who are being trained to take over the jobs as the leaders. Yeah. They call it the hidden curriculum sometimes in sociology. The the curriculum in certain schools is basically to be a good worker. 
show up on time, you know, like do what you're told, be quiet walking down the hallway. Other schools, the curriculum is a lot more engaging and creative and, you know, like trying to have people be future leaders, as you say, and, and things like that. And then throw in all the physical aspects of the schools, safety and dilapidated buildings with, you know, all kind of crap in the walls and the asbestos and the paint, you know, all kind of things like that as well. So it's uh, like intellectually yeah. in the classroom, but also physically in the classroom, the experiences are right. different for the funding, for the funding of these schools, all these things. So it, it's funny that it took me having those kids. And then that moment when they left kindergarten, then I got this whole other education here mm -hmm. in Northeast Florida at that very moment where I realized, oh, wow. So this early, we are already sorting out who's running things and who's not. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I think that we, people really don't address that, especially from that early on. Yeah, yeah. And how they're there, that's not fair. I guess no one ever said this was supposed to be fair, but I think in America, we have this idea of it all being a level playing field. Sure, particularly with education, they they like to call it a meritocracy, you know, that we all just kind of get to wherever we're going to get based on work. So, as I alluded to at the top of the hour, Dustin and I experienced some technical difficulties and we were booted off at this point. We agreed that we were at the end of the interview. The only thing really left to do was I was going to conclude things. So I will do that now by thanking Dustin and thanking him for taking time out of his schedule in particular with this kind of frustrating time, trying to figure out everything and dealing with glitches. If you have any questions or comments, please email them to me at woodward at fscj.edu. If they are for me, I will answer them. If they are for Dustin, I will forward them on. I'd like to finish this episode with a clip from Roberta Flack's song, Trying Times. Maybe a minute. I won't play the whole song, but we'll do a minute there. I chose this song because, first of all, not many vocalists could hang with Roberta Flack back in the day. But also, the album came out, I think, a month after I was born, and the lyrics, unfortunately sound like they could have been written yesterday. So I hope you enjoy it and a well wish to you all. People always talk about man's inhumanity to man. But what you trying to do?